Section number 14. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris A. Robertson. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section number 14. Adventure of the Black Fisherman, by Washington Irving. Everybody knows Black Sam, the old Negro fisherman, or, as he is commonly called, Mud Sam, who has fished about the Sound for the last half-century. It is now many years since Sam, who was then as active a young Negro as any in the province, and worked on the farm of Killian Soydam on Long Island, having finished his day's work at an early hour, was fishing one summer evening, just about the neighborhood of Hell Gate. He was in a light skiff, and, being well acquainted with the currents and eddies, had shifted his station, according to the shifting of the tide, from the hen and chickens to the hog's back, from the hog's back to the pot, from the pot to the frying pan. But, in the eagerness of his sport, he did not see that the tide was rapidly ebbing, until the roaring of the whirlpools and eddies warned him of his danger, and he had some difficulty in shooting his skiff from among the rocks and breakers and getting to the point of Blackwell's Island. Here he cast anchor for some time, waiting the turn of the tide to enable him to return homeward. As the night set in, it grew blustering and gusty. Dark clouds came bundling up in the west, and now and then a growl of thunder or a flash of lightning told that a summer storm was at hand. Sam pulled over, therefore, under the lee of Manhattan Island, and, coasting along, came to a snug nook, just under a steep, beetling rock, where he fastened his skiff to the root of a tree that shot up from a cleft, and spread its broad branches like a canopy over the water. The gust came scouring along, the wind threw up the river in white surges, the rain rattled among the leaves, the thunder bellowed worse than that which is now bellowing, the lightning seemed to lick up the surges of the stream. But Sam, snugly sheltered under a rock and tree, lay crouching in his skiff, rocking upon the billows until he fell asleep. When he awoke all was quiet. The gust had passed away, and only now and then a faint gleam of lightning in the east showed which way it had gone. The night was dark and moonless, and from the state of the tide Sam concluded it was near midnight. He was on the point of making loose his skiff to return homeward, when he saw a light gleaming along the water from a distance which seemed rapidly approaching. As it drew near he perceived it came from a lantern in the bow of a boat, gliding along under the shadow of the land. It pulled up in a small cove close to where he was. A man jumped on shore, and searching about with a lantern exclaimed, This is the place! Here's the iron ring! The boat was then made fast, and the man, returning on board, assisted his comrades in conveying something heavy on shore. As the light gleamed among them, Sam saw that they were five stout, desperate-looking fellows, in red woolen caps, with a leader in a three-cornered hat, and that some of them were armed with dirks, or long knives, and pistols. They talked low to one another, and occasionally in some outlandish tongue which he could not understand. On landing, they made their way among the bushes, taking turns to relieve each other in lugging their burden up the rocky bank. Sam's curiosity was now fully aroused. So, leaving his skiff, he clambered silently up a ridge that overlooked their path. They had stopped to rest a moment, and the leader was looking about the bushes with his lantern, 
Have you brought the spades? said one. They are here, replied another, who had them on his shoulder. We must dig deep where there will be no risk of discovery, said a third. A cold chill ran through Sam's veins. He fancied he saw before him a gang of murderers about to bury their victim. His knees smote together. In his agitation he shook the branch of the tree which he was supporting himself, and he looked over the edge of the cliff. "'What's that?' cried one of the gang. "'Someone stirs among the bushes!' The lantern was held up in the direction of the noise. One of the redcaps cocked a pistol and pointed it to the very place where Sam was standing. He stood motionless, breathless, expecting the next moment to be his last. Fortunately, his dingy complexion was in his favor, and he made no glare among the leaves. "'Tis no one,' said the man with the lantern. "'What a plague! You would not fire off your pistol and alarm the country!' The pistol was uncocked, the burden was resumed, and the party slowly toiled along the bank. Sam watched them as they went, the light sending back fitful gleams through the dripping bushes, and it was not till they were fairly out of sight that he ventured to draw a breath freely. He now thought of getting back in his boat and making his escape out of the reach of such dangerous neighbors, but curiosity was all-powerful. He hesitated, and lingered, and listened. By and by he heard the strokes of spades. "'They're digging a grave,' he said to himself, and the cold sweat started upon his forehead. Every stroke of a spade, as it sounded through the silent groves, went to his heart. It was evident that there was as little noise made as possible. Everything had an air of terrible mystery and secrecy. Sam had a great relish for the horrible. A tale of murder was a treat for him, and he was a constant attendant at executions. He could not resist an impulse, in spite of every danger, to steal nearer to the scene of mystery, and overlook the midnight fellows at their work. He crawled along cautiously, therefore, inch by inch, stepping with the utmost care among the dry leaves, lest their rustling should betray him. He came at length to where a steep rock intervened between him and the gang, for he saw the light of their lantern shining up against the branches of the trees on the side. Sam slowly and silently clambered up the surface of the rock, and, raising his head above its naked edge, beheld the villains immediately below him, and so near, that though he dreaded discovery, he dared not withdraw, lest the least movement should be heard. In this way he remained, with his round black face peering above the edge of the rock, like the sun just emerging above the edge of the horizon, or the round-cheeked moon on the dial of a clock. The redcaps had nearly finished their work. The grave was filled up, and they were carefully replacing the turf. This done, they scattered dry leaves over the place. And now, said the leader, I defy the devil himself to find it out. The murderers! exclaimed Sam involuntarily. The whole gang started, and, looking up, beheld the round black head of Sam just above them, his white eyes strained half out of their orbits, his white teeth chattering, and his whole visage shining with cold perspiration. "'We're discovered!' cried one. "'Down with him!' cried another. Sam heard the cocking of a pistol, but did not pause for the report. He scrambled over the rock and stone through brush and briar, rolled down banks like a hedgehog, scrambled up others like a catamount. In every direction he heard someone or other of the gang hemming him in. At length he reached the rocky ridge along the river. One of the red caps was hard behind him. A steep rock like a wall rose directly in his way. It seemed to cut off all retreat, when fortunately he espied the strong, cord-like branch of a grapevine reaching halfway down it. 
He sprang at it with the force of a desperate man, seized it with both hands, and, being young and agile, succeeded in swinging himself to the summit of the cliff. Here he stood in full relief against the sky when the redcap cocked his pistol and fired. The ball whistled by Sam's head. With the lucky thought of a man in an emergency, he uttered a yell, fell to the ground, and detached at the same time a fragment of rock, which tumbled with a loud splash into the river. "'I've done his business,' said the red cap, to one or two of his comrades as they arrived panting. "'He'll tell no tales except to the fishes in the river.' <laughs> his pursuers now turned to meet their companions. Sam, silently sliding down the surface of the rock, let himself quietly into a skiff cast loose the fastening, and abandoned himself to the rapid current, which in that place runs like a mill-stream, and soon swept him off from the neighborhood. It was not, however, until he had drifted a great distance that he ventured to ply his oars, when he made his skiff dart like an arrow through the strait of Hellgate, never heeding the danger of pot, frying-pan, nor hog's back itself, nor did he feel himself thoroughly secure until safely nestled in bed in the cockloft of the ancient farmhouse of the Soydams. Here the worthy Peachy Prow paused to take breath, and to take a sip of the gossip tankard that stood at his elbow. His auditors remained with open mouths and outstretched necks, gaping like a nest of swallows for an additional mouthful. "'And is that all?' exclaimed the half-pay officer. "'That's all that belongs to the story,' said Peachy Prow. "'And did Sam ever find out what was buried by the redcaps?' said Wolfert eagerly, whose mind was haunted by nothing but ingots and doubloons. "'Not that I know of,' said Peachy. "'He had no time to spare from his work, "'and, to tell the truth, "'he did not like to run the risk of another race among the rocks. "'Besides, how should he recollect the spot where the grave had been digged? "'Everything would look so different by daylight, "'and then where was the use in looking for a dead body "'when there's no chance of hanging the murderers?' "'Aye, but are you sure it was a dead body they buried?' said Wolfert. "'To be sure,' cried Peachy Prow exultingly, does it not haunt him in the neighborhood to this very day? Haunts! exclaimed several of the party, opening their eyes still wider, and edging their chairs still closer. Aye, haunts! repeated Peachy. Have none of you heard of Father Redcap, who haunts the old bermed farmhouse in the woods, on the border of the Sound near Hellgate? Oh, to be sure, I've heard tell of something of the kind, but then I took it for some old wives' fable. Old wives' fable or not, said Peachy Praw. That farmhouse stands by the very spot. It's been unoccupied time out of mind, and stands in a lonely part of the coast. But those who fish in the neighborhood have often heard strange noises there, and lights have been seen about the wood at night, and an old fellow in a red cap has been seen at the windows more than once, which people take to be the ghost of the body buried there. Once upon a time three soldiers took shelter in the building for the night, and rummaged it from top to bottom, when they found old Father Redcap astride of a cider-barrel in the cellar, with a jug in one hand and a goblet in the other. He offered them a drink out of his goblet, but just as one of the soldiers was putting it to his mouth, whew, a flash of fire blazed through the cellar, blinding every mother's son of them for several minutes. And when they recovered their eyesight, jug, goblet, and Redcap had vanished, and nothing but the empty cider-barrel remained. Here the half-pay officer, who was growing very muzzy and sleepy and nodding over his liquor, with half-extinguished eye, suddenly gleamed up like an expiring light. "'That's all fudge,' he said, as Peachy finished his last story. "'Well, I don't vouch for the truth of it myself,' said Peachy Prow. 
though all the world knows that there's something strange about that house and grounds. But as to the story of Mud Sam, I believe it just as well as if it had happened to myself. The deep interest taken in this conversation by the company had made them unconscious of the uproar abroad among the elements, when suddenly they were electrified by a tremendous clap of thunder. A lumbering crash followed instantaneously, shaking the building to its very foundation. All started from their seats, imagining the shock of an earthquake, or that old father Redcap was coming among them in all his terrors. They listened for a moment, but only heard the rain pelting against the windows, and the wind howling among the trees. The explosion was soon explained by the apparition of an old negro's bald head thrust in at the door, his white goggle eyes contrasting with his jetty pall, which was wet with rain, and shone like a bottle. In a jargon but half intelligible, he announced that the kitchen chimney had been struck with lightning. A sullen pause of the storm, which now rose and sank in gusts, produced a momentary stillness. In this interval, the report of a musket was heard, and a long shout, almost like a yell, resounded from the shores. Everyone crowded to the window. Another musket shot was heard, and another long shout, mingled wildly with the rising blast of wind. It seemed as if the cry came up from the bosom of the water, for though incessant flashes of lightning spread a light about the shore, no one was to be seen. Suddenly the window of the room overhead was opened, and a loud halloo uttered by the mysterious stranger. Several hailings passed from one party to the other, but in a language which none of the company in the bar-room could understand, and presently they heard the window closed, and a great noise overhead, as if all the furniture were pulled and hauled about the room. The negro servant was summoned, and shortly afterward was seen assisting the veteran to lug the ponderous sea-chest downstairs. The landlord was in amazement. "'What? You are not going on the water in such a storm?' "'Storm?' said the other scornfully. "'Do you call such a sputter of weather a storm?' "'You'll get drenched to the skin. You'll catch your death,' said Peachy Praw affectionately. "'Thunder and lightning!' exclaimed the veteran. "'Don't preach about weather to a man that has cruised in whirlwinds and tornadoes!' The obsequious Peachy was again struck dumb. The voice from the water was heard once more in a tone of impatience. The bystanders shared with redoubled awe at this man of storms, who seemed to have come up out of the deep, and to be summoned back to it again. As, with the assistance of the negro, he slowly bore his ponderous sea-chest toward the shore, they eyed it with the superstitious feeling— half doubting whether he were not really about to embark upon it and launch forth upon the wild waves. They followed him at a distance with a lantern. "'Douse the light!' roared a hoarse voice from the water. "'No one wants light here!' "'Thunder and lightning!' exclaimed the veteran, turning up short upon them. "'Back to the house with you!' Wolfert and his companions shrank back in dismay. Still, their curiosity would not allow them to entirely withdraw. A long sheet of lightning now flickered across the waves, and discovered a boat, filled with men, just under a rocky point, rising and sinking with the heaving surges and swashing of the waters at every heave. It was with difficulty held to the rocks by a boat-hook, for the current rushed furiously around the point. The veteran hoisted one end of the lumbering sea-chest onto the gunwale of the boat, and seized the handle at the other end to lift it in when the motion propelled the boat from the shore. The chest slipped off from the gunwale and, sinking into the waves, pulled the veteran headlong after it. A loud shriek was uttered by all on the shore, and a volley of execrations by those on board, but boat and man were hurried away by rushing swiftness of the tide. A pitchy darkness succeeded. 
Wilford Weber indeed fancied that he distinguished a cry for help, and then he beheld the drowning man beckoning for assistance. But when the lightning again gleamed along the water, all was void. Neither man nor boat was to be seen. Nothing but the dashing and weltering of the waves as they hurried past. The company returned to the tavern to await the subsiding of the storm. They resumed their seats and gazed on each other with dismay. The whole transaction had not occupied five minutes, and not a dozen words had been spoken. When they looked at the oaken chair they could scarcely realize the fact that the strange being who had so lately tenanted it, full of life and Herculean vigor, should already be a corpse. There was the very glass he had just drunk from. There lay the ashes from the pipe which he had smoked, as it were, with his last breath. As the worthy burghers pondered on these things, they felt a terrible conviction of uncertainty of existence, and each felt as if the ground on which he stood was rendered less stable by his awful example. As, however, the most of the company were possessed of that valuable philosophy which enables a man to bear up with fortitude against the misfortunes of his neighbors, they soon managed to console themselves for the tragic end of the veteran. The landlord was particularly happy that the poor dear man had paid his reckoning before he went, and he made a kind of farewell speech on the occasion. He came, said he, in a storm, and he went in a storm. He came in the night, and he went in the night. He came nobody knows whence, and he's gone nobody knows whence. For aught I know, he's gone to the sea once more on his chest, and may land to bother some people on the other side of the world, though it's a thousand pities, added he, if he's gone to Davy Jones' locker, that he had not left his own locker behind him. His locker! St. Nicholas preserve us! cried Peachy Prow. I'd not have that sea-chest in the house for any money. I'll warrant he'd come racketing after it at nights, and making a haunted house of the inn. And as to his going to sea in his chest, I recollect what happened to Skipper Onderdonk's ship on his voyage from Amsterdam. The boatswain died during a storm, so they wrapped him up in a sheet, and put him in his own sea-chest and threw him overboard. But they neglected in their hurry-scurry to say prayers over him, and the storm raged and roared louder than ever, and they saw the dead man seated in his chest with his shroud for a sail coming hard after the ship, and the sea beckoning before him in great sprays like fire. And there they kept scudding day after day and night after night, expecting every moment to go to wreck, and every night they saw the dead boatswain in his sea-chest trying to get up with them, and they heard his whistle above the blasts of the wind, and he seemed to send great seas mountain-high after them that would have swamped the ship if they had not put up the dead lights. And so it went on till they lost sight of him in the fogs off Newfoundland, and supposed he had veered ship and stood for Dead Man's Isle. So much for burying a man at sea without saying prayers over him. The thunder gust, which had hitherto detained the company, was now at an end. The cuckoo clock on the hall had told midnight. Everyone pressed to depart, for seldom was such a late hour of the night trespassed on by these quiet burghers. As they sallied forth, they found the heavens once more serene. The storm which had lately obscured them had rolled away, and lay plied up in fleecy masses on the horizon, lighted up by the bright crescent of the moon which looked like a little silver lamp hung up in a palace of clouds. The dismal occurrence of the night and the dismal narrations they had made, had left a superstitious feeling in every mind. They cast a fearful glance at the spot where the buccaneer had disappeared, almost expecting to see him sailing on his chest in the cool moonshine. The trembling rays glittered along the water, 
but all was placid, and the current dimpled over the spot where he had gone down. The party huddled together in a little crowd as they repaired homeward, particularly when they passed a lonely field where a man had been murdered, and even the sexton, who had to complete his journey alone, though a custom, one would think, to ghosts and goblins, went a long way around, rather, than pass by his own churchyard. Wilford Webbert had now carried home a fresh stock of stories and notions to ruminate upon. These accounts of pots of money and Spanish treasures buried here and there and everywhere about the rocks and bays of these wild shores made him almost dizzy. "'Blessed St. Nicholas!' ejaculated he, half aloud. "'Is it not possible to come upon one of these golden hordes and to make oneself rich in a twinkling? How hard that I must go on, delving and delving day in and day out,' merely to make a morsel of bread, when one lucky stroke of a spade might enable me to ride in my carriage for the rest of my life. As he turned over in his thoughts all that had been told of the singular adventure of the negro fisherman, his imagination gave a totally different complexion to the tale. He saw in the gang of redcaps nothing but a crew of pirates burying their spoils, and his cupidity was once more awakened by the possibility of at length getting on the traces of some of this lurking wealth. Indeed, his infected fancy tinged everything with gold. He felt like the greedy inhabitant of Baghdad when his eyes had been greased with the magic ointment of the dervish that gave him to see all the treasures of the earth. Caskets of buried jewels, chests of ingots, and barrels of outlandish coins seemed to court him from their concealment and supplicate him to relieve them from their untimely graves. On making private inquiries about the grounds, said to be haunted by Feather Redcap, he was more and more confirmed in his surmise. He learned that the place had several times been visited by experienced money-diggers who had heard Black Sam's story, though none of them had met with success. On the contrary, they had always been dogged with ill luck of some kind or other in consequence, as Wolfert concluded, of not going to work at the proper time with the proper ceremonials. The last attempt had been made by Cobus Quackenbos, who dug for a whole night and met with incredible difficulty, for as fast as he threw one shovel full of earth out of the hole, two were thrown in by invisible hands. He succeeded so far, however, as to uncover an iron chest, when there was a terrible roaring, ramping, and raging of uncouth figures about the hole, and at length a shower of blows dealt by invisible cudgels fairly belabored him off of the forbidden ground. This Cobus Quackenbos had declared on his deathbed, so that there could not be any doubt of it. He was a man that had devoted many years of his life to money-digging, and it was thought would have ultimately succeeded had he not died recently of brain fever in the almshouse. Wolfert Weber was now in a worry, trepidation, and impatience, fearful lest some rival adventurer should get a scent of the buried gold. He determined privately to seek out the black fisherman and to get him to serve as a guide to the place where he had witnessed the mysterious scene of internment. Sam was easily found, for he was one of those old habitual beings that lived about the neighborhood until they wear themselves a place in the public mind, and become, in a manner, public characters. There was not an unlucky urchin about town that did not know Sam the fisherman and think that he had a right to play his tricks upon the old negro. Sam had led an amphibious life for more than half a century, about the shores of the bay and the fishing-grounds of the Sound. He passed the greater part of his time on and in the water, particularly about Hell Gate, 
and might have been taken in bad weather for one of the hobgoblins that used to haunt that strait. There would he be seen, at all times and in all weathers, sometimes in his skiff, anchored among the eddies, or prowling like a shark about some wreck where fish are supposed to be most abundant, sometimes seated on a rock from hour to hour, looking, in the mist and drizzle, like a solitary heron watching for its prey. He was well acquainted with every hole and corner of the sound, from the wallabout to Hellgate, and from Hellgate unto the devil's stepping-stones, and it was even affirmed that he knew all the fish in the river by their Christian names. Wilford found him at his cabin, which was not much larger than a tolerable dog-house. It was rudely constructed of fragments of wrecks and drift built on the rocky shore at the foot of the old fort, just about what at present forms the point of the battery. A very ancient and fish-like smell pervaded the place. Oars, paddles, and fishing-rods were leaning against the wall of the fort. A net was spread on the sand to dry. A skiff was drawn up on the beach, and at the door of his cabin was Mud Sam himself, indulging in a true negro luxury of sleeping in the sunshine. Many years had passed away since the time of Sam's youthful adventure, and the snows of many a winter had grizzled the knotty wool upon his head. He perfectly recollected the circumstances, however, for he had often been called upon to relate them, though in his version of the story he differed in many points from Peachy Prow, as is not infrequent the case with authentic historians. As to the subsequent researches of money-diggers, Sam knew nothing about them. They were matters quite out of his line. Neither did the cautious Wolfert care to disturb his thoughts on that point. His only wish was to secure the old fisherman as a pilot to the spot, and this was readily effected. The long time that had intervened since his nocturnal adventure had effaced all Sam's awe of the place, and the promise of a trifling reward roused him at once from his sleep and his sunshine. The tide was adverse to making the expedition by water, and Wolfert was too impatient to get to the land of promise to wait for its turning. They set off, therefore, by land. A walk of four or five miles brought them to the edge of the wood, which at that time covered the greater part of the eastern side of the island. It was just beyond the pleasant region of Bloomendale. Here they struck into a long lane, struggling among the trees and bushes, very much overgrown with weeds and mullion stalks, as if but seldom used, and so completely overshadowed as to enjoy but a kind of twilight. Wild vines entangled the trees and flaunted in their faces. Brambles and briars caught their clothes as they passed. The garter-snake glided across their path. The spotted toad hopped and waddled before them, and the restless catbird mewed at them from every thicket. Had Wilford Weber been deeply read in romantic legend, he might have fancied himself entering upon forbidden, enchanted ground, or that these were some of the guardians set to keep watch upon buried treasure. As it was, the loneliness of the place and the wild stories connected with it had their effect upon his mind. On reaching the lower end of the lane, they found themselves near the shore of the sound, in a kind of amphitheatre surrounded by forest trees. The area had once been a grass plot, but was now shagged with briars and rank weeds. At one end, and just on the river bank, was a ruined building, little better than a heap of rubbish, with a stack of chimneys rising like a solitary tower out of the centre. The current of the sound rushed along just below it, and the wildly grown trees drooping their branches into its waves. Wilford had not a doubt that this was the haunted house of Father Redcap, and called to mind the story of Peachy Prow. The evening was approaching, and the light, 
falling dubiously among the woody places gave a melancholy tone to the scene well calculated to foster any lurking feeling of awe or superstition the night-hawk wheeling about in the highest regions of the air emitted his peevish boding cry the woodpecker gave a lonely tap now and then on some hollow tree and the firebird streamed by them with his deep red plumage they now came to an enclosure that had once been a garden it extended along the foot of a rocky ridge, but was little better than a wilderness of weeds, with here and there a matted rose-bush or a peach or plum-tree, grown wild and ragged and covered with moss. At the end of the garden they passed a kind of vault in the side of the bank facing the water. It had the look of a root-house. The door, though decayed, was still strong and appeared to have been recently patched up. Wilfert pushed it open. It gave a harsh grating upon its hinges, and, striking against something like a box, a rattling sound ensued, and a skull rolled on the floor. Wolfert drew back, shuddering, but was reassured on being informed by the negro that this was a family vault, belonging to one of the old Dutch families that owned this estate, an assertion corroborated by the sight of coffins of various sizes piled within. Sam had been familiar with all these scenes when a boy, and now knew that he could not be far from the place of which they were in quest. They now made their way to the water's edge, scrambling along ledges of rock that overhung the waves, and obliged often to hold by shrubs and grapevines to avoid slipping into the deep and hurried stream. At length they came to a small cove, or rather an indent of the shore. It was protected by steep rocks, and overshadowed by a thick copse of oaks and chestnuts, so as to be sheltered and almost concealed. The beach shelved gradually within the cove, but the current swept deep and black and rapid along its jutting points. The negro paused, raised his remnant of a hat, and scratched his grizzled pall for a moment as he regarded this nook. Then, suddenly clapping his hands, he stepped exultingly forward and pointed to a large iron ring stapled firmly in the rock just where a broad shelf of stone furnished a commodious landing-place. It was the very spot where the redcaps had landed. Years had changed the more perishable features of the scene, but rock and iron yield slowly to the influence of time. On looking more closely, Wolfert remarked three crosses cut in the rock just above the ring, which had no doubt some mysterious signification. Old Sam now readily recognized the overhanging rock under which his skiff had been sheltered during the thunder-gust. To follow up the course which the midnight gang had taken, however, was a harder task. His mind had been so much taken up on the eventful occasion by the persons of the drama as to pay but little attention to the scenes, and these places looked so different by night and day. After wandering about for some time, however, they came to an opening among the trees, which Sam thought resembled the place. There was a ledge of rock of moderate height, like a wall on one side, which he thought might be the very ridge whence he had overlooked the diggers. Wilford examined it narrowly and at length discovered three crosses similar to those on the above ring cut deeply of the rock but nearly obliterated by moss that had grown over them his heart leaped for joy for he doubted not that they were the private marks of the buccaneers all now that remained was to ascertain the precise spot where the treasure lay buried for otherwise he might dig at random in the neighborhood of the crosses without coming upon the spoils and he had already had enough of such profitless labor here, however, the old negro was perfectly at a loss, and indeed perplexed him by a variety of opinions, for his recollections were all confused. Sometimes he declared it must have been at the foot of a mulberry tree hard by, 
then beside a great white stone, then under a small green knoll, a short distance from the ledge of rocks, until at length Wolfert became as bewildered as himself. The shadows of evening were now spreading themselves over the woods, and rock and tree began to mingle together. It was evidently too late to attempt anything further at present, and, indeed, Wilford had come unprovided with the implements to prosecute their researches. Satisfied, therefore, with having ascertained the place, he took note of all its landmarks, that he might recognize it again, and set out on his return homeward, resolved to prosecute this golden enterprise without delay. End of section 14. Recording by Chris A. Robertson, Kalamazoo, Michigan. www.krave-llc.com